Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today's podcast will be guest hosted by Lisa Redmond, a first-year student in the Department of History at Duke University. Her research focuses on colleges and universities and their connections to slavery. Today, she'll be interviewing Paul Finkelman, president of Gratz College, about the new edition of his book, Defending Slavery, Pro-Slavery Thought in the Old South, A Brief History with Documents. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about your new book? So Bedford Books and I discussed doing a book on pro-slavery thought. Mm -hmm. There is no single text on pro-slavery thought. Pro-slavery thought covers a huge world. There are religious texts. It seems to me that almost any white Protestant minister in the South who wanted to get ahead in his career gave a sermon on slavery and published it. There are literally hundreds of pro-slavery sermons. There are scientific texts. There are medical texts. There are historical texts. There are economic texts. All of them explaining why slavery is a good thing. And I read widely. I read for a year. I knew much of this literature, but I hadn't ever sat down and sort of made a comprehensive reading. And of course, this is what we do as scholars. We read a lot first before we have anything to say. And then I began to take what I thought were the best pieces. And what do I mean by the best pieces? I mean, in some ways, what can be the best racist argument in favor of slavery? And I don't mean that I agree with the argument. What I mean is that within the four corners of the argument, it is articulate, it is clear, and you understand what the person is saying. And I began to put all these together, editing them to reasonable sizes. One of the pieces I have in there is a very famous poem called The Hireling and the Slave, written by a lawyer slave owner in South Carolina, who was also an opponent of secession in 1860 and 61. The Hireling and the Slave is a 130-page book. Obviously, I had to pick and choose a few stanzas to get at the essence of the argument. And of course, his argument was that slavery is so much better for working people than capitalism, that the slave is so much better off than poor factory workers who are who lose their jobs when the factory closes. So I put all these things together in a book called Defending Slavery. So that becomes the beginning of the book. And it just came out in a new second edition, which I'm very happy with, where I got to add new documents and found some documents that I had searched for the first time around and could not find and made actually a couple of historical discoveries that had not been known about. What new insights is this new edition offering us that maybe you couldn't offer in the last edition? One thing that was missing in the first edition was the voice of Southern white women. Now, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that in an era when women were not supposed to be involved in politics and were not supposed to be involved in the public, 
Southern white women were particularly constrained. If this had been a collection of material on attacking slavery, it would have been very different because of course in the North, women are prominently involved in the abolitionist movement and are everywhere and always talking about slavery. And this will annoy the people who teach English, but arguably the single most important book ever written in the English language was written by a woman who opposed slavery, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. There is no more important book, at least for its impact on society. The possible exception might be Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which of course affects health and food safety. In the modern world, maybe it's The Silent Spring. But what's fascinating, of course, about Stowe is that she writes this novel. But there isn't an equivalent in the South. There are a number of anti-Uncle Tom books written in the South. And when I started the second edition, I read parts of many of them. Uh, It was very painful. They are not very well written. They are not very interesting. And they are impossible to just kind of grasp a, a chapter or a half a chapter to get at the main story. Some of these had been written by Southern women novelists, but there were very few. But what I did find, which I had not been able to find the first time around, were a couple of new pieces. One of them is an essay by a woman named Lucy Kenny, who was in Virginia, called A Refutation of the Principles of Abolition, which was printed in 1836. This is a very hard book to find. And in fact, the book doesn't even say who the author is. I only know who the author is because of the Library of Congress cataloging, because the Library of Congress finds these things out. But if you get a copy of it, it doesn't give her a name. It's simply referred to as a woman of Petersburg, Virginia. So I have an excerpt from that. And then I found a very famous letter written in 1860 about the pending execution of John Brown. Okay. And this was written by a woman who signs her name, M.J.C. Mason. And it is a letter to an abolitionist woman who had condemned the forthcoming killing of John Brown. So this was a letter written to the abolitionist writer, Lydia Marie Child. Lydia Marie Child had written a letter to the governor of Virginia urging him not to execute John Brown. And the author of this letter wrote back to Child in scathing language about how horrible John Brown was and how you want to murder me and you want to murder all of my family. And Everybody who has ever written on this letter, and there's a fair amount of scholarship on this letter, had said that this was the wife of Senator James Mason of Virginia because it was signed M.J.C. Mason. 
And Mason's wife's first name was Margarita. So everybody assumed this is Senator Mason's wife, but it's not. And in fact, when you look at the three initials, MJC Mason, you realize that Senator Mason's wife's initials were MC Mason. So it's very close. There's just that J in the middle. (laughs) But that was the tip for me because that's not Mason's wife. And then she signed it where she lived. And of course, this is what we do when we're historians. We go and do the research. And I found out that where she lived was nowhere near where Senator Mason lived. So who is this MJC Mason, this mysterious woman who wrote this letter? Well, her first name is Marie. The C stands for car, which is one of her family names. And the J is the family name of her great-grandfather, Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. So what I discovered is, is this letter is written by Marie Jefferson Carr Mason. The Carrs, of course, are Jefferson's nephews. The Carr brothers were Jefferson's nephews. Jefferson's sister married a man named Carr. Mm. This helps explain why she felt confident to write this public letter because she came from such an enormously prestigious Virginia family Mm. that she could venture out into politics and no one would say she's being unladylike. And so I added these two pieces to the to the book because they were important and interesting mm-hmm. and because they help us better understand the nature of pro-slavery thought. And we also added a document, which is a picture, which was something new and fun. And so what do you do to find a, a picture of pro-slavery thought? I went to a book by a scientist, Dr. Josiah Knott, who is a very good physician in Mobile. And he had written a book called Types of Mankind. And in his book, Types of Mankind, he tried to illustrate how black people had different physiological structures than white people, which of course made them less intelligent, mm-hmm. made them less deserving of being treated mm-hmm. so this illustration in what i really appreciated about the book was in your little introduction section your analysis of the colonial period in america and especially uh, the effect that the british empire had on the laws of its american colonies mm-hmm. uh, so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this british connection well, the, the, the British come to America as the only European power that has no slavery in the home country and no legal tradition of having slavery in the home country. Mm. And the, together, these two are very important. Slavery, of course, had always existed in Europe. Slavery has pretty much always existed everywhere. It's very hard to find any cultures after the development of agriculture 
where slavery is not found. Slavery is almost always profitable. Mm. Free labor is nice if you're on the receiving end of it. And so that's that's part of the the profitability of slavery. Um, slavery has also, of course, often been associated with prestige and power. You are important in your community by the number of people who you own. Slavery has often been a alternative to slaughtering people in wartime, so that under traditions that continue well into the 16th and 17th century, it seems permissible to enslave your captured enemy rather than killing your captured enemy. So slavery is the humane alternative to killing people on the battlefield. But the end result of this is, is that slavery is everywhere. By the 1500s or, or by, by the 1400s, which is the eve of the European expansion into the New World, slavery is found in all of the Mediterranean world. Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece. There's some slavery in southern France. And of course, also in North Africa, there is a vibrant slave trade between Muslim North Africa and Christian Southern Europe. In both places, the the religious authorities frown upon enslaving people of the same faith that you are. They don't prohibit it, but they frown on it. And so there's a marvelous trade between Europe selling Christians to the Muslim world and Muslim North Africa selling Muslims to the Christian world. You can't enslave your fellows, but you can sell them to somebody else who can enslave. Africa, of course, has slavery almost everywhere at the time of the European encounter with Africa. And so the initial African slave trade is Africans being brought into Europe. There are African slaves coming up through North Africa in the 1200s, the 1100s, 1300s. And in fact, the uh, Muslim North African slave traders probably remove more people from Africa than all of the Europeans do over the history of slavery from, you know, say the year 1100 until the 20th century. Uh, millions of Africans will go into what is today Iraq, Iran, as far east as India, and into North Africa everywhere, and sometimes into Europe. So, so that's, that's the world. That's the slave world. France pretends it doesn't have slavery. And one of my colleagues, uh, Sue Peabody uh, at Washington State University, has written a wonderful book with the fabulously ironic title, There Are No Slaves in France, which, of course, is irony because there were slaves in France, of course. But even if there had been no slaves in France and no slaves in Holland and no slaves in Denmark and no slaves in Sweden, what these countries have in common is that they have all inherited a legal tradition of slavery. And the most important ones, of course, are France and Holland, which have a Roman law tradition. And Rome is one gigantic slaveholding world. 
and significant parts of Roman law are about slavery. So Spain and Portugal, on the other hand, have completely vibrant, wide open slave systems. When Columbus returns from the New World, what does he bring Queen Isabella for sponsoring his trip? Carib Indians as slaves. Mm -hmm. So again, one of the ironies of slavery is that the transatlantic slave trade is not initially Africans to the New World, but rather it's native peoples of the New World to Europe. And only later does it shift to bringing Africans to the New World. So when we think about this world, people who, who migrate to a new place fill their suitcase with the things that matter in their old world. And that includes their law books. That includes their cultural expectations. That includes their understanding of how the world works. And so when the Spanish come to the new world, they see native peoples and they think slaves. Mm -hmm. And when the Portuguese come to what becomes Brazil, they see native peoples and they think slaves. And when the Portuguese and the Spanish come to Africa, they don't even have to think slaves because they're already slaves there. They just think, let's purchase them. So slavery, everybody's involved in slavery. The French and the Dutch don't have slavery, although the French really do, but the Dutch certainly don't, but they have slave laws in their legal culture. If you were a Dutch lawyer, you learned about slavery because you studied Roman law. Mm -hmm. And so when those countries come to the new world, it's very easy for them to add slavery to the structure of the world that they're going into because they have it on the books. It's in their luggage, it's in their suitcases. The one exception to this is Great Britain. The British have abolished slavery a long time ago, somewhat after the Romans left. By the time of the Norman conquest in 1066, there is no slavery in England. And hasn't been for a while. And while there is serfdom and serfs and villainage, as the English call it, Villainage and serfdom is not slavery. And, 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 it's, and it's very important as historians to understand the distinctions between things like villainage and slavery, between serfs and slaves. So the British come here and initially they do not expect to have slavery. And in fact, as the late historian Edmund Morgan showed in a incredibly brilliant book, a truly path-breakingly brilliant book, American Slavery, American Freedom. The first British to really come to America think of themselves as liberators of slaves. He tells the story of John Hawkins and Francis Drake, who are initially pirates and initially are involved in trading slaves. And they trade slaves just like everybody else in the Atlantic world. They don't have any moral compunction one way or the other. But early on in their American adventures, they stop trading slaves. And instead, they start freeing slaves from the Spanish Caribbean. And they actually integrate these slaves into their crews. So if you look at, at English ships in the late 1500s, 
at the time of the Spanish Armada, you'd see a significant number of black crewmen. These are slaves rescued from Spanish plantations, from Spanish settlements. And when the British first come to America, they believe what they're going to do is to rescue slaves and Indians, native populations, from Spanish tyranny. The only problem with this, of course, is, is that from the British perspective, is, is they settle in a part of the Americas, first off the coast of North Carolina, and then in Virginia, where there aren't any Spaniards. So the native populations don't exactly feel oppressed by the Spaniards because there aren't any. And within a relatively short space from 1607, when Virginia first first settled, until I would say 1680s. So it's a 75, 80 year period. The English go from being completely against slavery to embracing it. It does not happen overnight. We have just celebrated the anniversary of 1619. The people who arrived in Virginia in 1619 were not slaves. They were free people. They were treated as indentured servants. They worked for a term of years, and those who survived became free. As we know, one of the early Africans to come to Virginia is a man who is initially known as Antonio, or Antonio the Negro. Mm -hmm. And he later shows up as Anthony Johnson, a landowner and a slave owner. And that's because Anthony Johnson doesn't see any reason not to own slaves, just like his fellow white Virginians do. Mm -hmm. As late as the 1670s, there are courts in Virginia, probably led by people who already own slaves, who have decisions freeing particular African individuals on the grounds that they were never slaves, but they were indentured servants. They are entitled to be free. So Virginians simply are kind of flip-flopping around trying to figure out how to do this. Eventually they figure it out. Eventually they adopt slavery. And in the 1660s is where we see the legislation creating slavery. It also, by the way, creates a number of other patterns which will follow American history, I would say to this day in some respects, but these laws first declare that the status of somebody will be determined by the mother, not the father, which is a completely reversal of English law. Well, why is that? Because English masters are having children with their black servants and they don't know what to do with them. So if their black servants are free, the child is free. If the black servant has become a slave, then the child will be a slave. This, by the way, has enormous implications for American women's history. Because what this means is that men in Virginia can have sex with black women and have children with black women. And the government doesn't have to worry about supporting these children. The official agency in charge of what were in legal terms bastards, that is illegitimate children, the overseers of the poor, 
don't have to worry about these children because the owner of the slave woman will be responsible for raising them. And this means that a whole system of preventing non-marital sex, mm. not necessarily for prudish reasons, although there is some of that, and not necessarily for religious reasons, although there is some of that, but rather for economic reasons. You don't want a bunch of children with no breadwinner to take care of them. That doesn't apply to slave women. So it makes slave women completely vulnerable. The whims of the men around them, especially their white owners, but also other black men. Because nobody's going to investigate who the father is. Then you add to this that the Virginia government through the House of Burgesses passes laws prohibiting blacks from testifying against whites. And now there are no protections for African women and African-American women. Because they can't complain. And even if they could complain, nobody cares. So it leads to dramatic results for a very, very long time in American life. Then they follow this up with rules that essentially say that black people who are wandering around, who are not on the land of the person who is entitled to their labor, whether as indentured servants or as slaves, that black people who are wandering around can be picked up and questioned. Mm. They're presumptively runaways. Mm. So my African-American friends talk about the hard problem of what they call driving while black, which means if you're black, you get stopped simply because you're black. In the 1670s, Virginia invents the crime of walking while black. Because if you are walking around, you are presumptively committing a crime. And following on that, you get law after law after law where the main reason why the crime exists is because one of the parties involved with doing something is either African or of African ancestry. And so we create in our culture a presumption of criminality for Black people in the colonial period. And I think we see that is something that is almost in our cultural DNA. And it's something that the, we struggle against in the United States every day. That all comes out of this colonial period. But what else comes out of the colonial period is how the English in Virginia creates slavery, which is contrary to English law, because English law says that all people are free. You know, there's a statement in English law that the the meanest serf, and I don't mean is not in terms of being not nice, mean in, in terms of, of being poor or, or having nothing, that the serf's home cannot be invaded by the sheriff without a warrant. That the privateness of your freedom must be always protected. That's deeply ingrained in English law. 
the notion in Magna Carta that you cannot be jailed without a trial according to the law of the land. All of that is counter to slavery. So, so what the Virginians do is to create a system that is an end run around English common law. Finally, there's one other piece of this, and this is going to get us to the revolution really quickly. Okay? The English world is a world of hierarchy. You have the king on top. You have the royal family below the king. You have the high nobility, the dukes, the barons, the viscounts, the people who in some ways might even be have blood relationships with the royal family or have relatives who have blood relationships with the royal family, right? And then you have the lesser nobility and you have the gentry and you have the yeoman farmers and you have city dwellers and you have agrarian laborers and you have you have people who serve on ships as merchant seamen who are pretty low down on the totem pole. And at the bottom, in the theoretical framework, you have serfs. Mm. Now, the serfs are gone by this time. But if you went to college and you took a, a, a civics course on English government in 1590, you'd learn about the serfs. But in this hierarchical system, king on top, serf on the bottom, it's not that hard to just add another layer of the hierarchy on the bottom. Mm-hmm. or two layers or three layers so you can have slaves and you can have free black people and you can have Native Americans we just shove them underneath but it's all a hierarchy because because everybody understands and the English don't see anything wrong with inherited status after all who died and made you king my father died and made me king that's the point and so it's very easy to just have an inherited status of slave. And then we get the American Revolution. And here's where pro-slavery thought becomes so critical. Because the American Revolution says we're all created equal. There is no hierarchy. We have no king. Tom Paine, the great theoretician of the revolution, says, in America, the law is king. And of course, what he means is we're all equal under law. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that we're all created equal, as Jefferson tells us, endowed with the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But does Master Tom of Monticello really think this counts for his 150 slaves? Absolutely not. And so what you develop is this theoretical structure, which is what my book is about, to do this. You develop the theoretical structure for allowing for slavery to exist. And here's the thing that is critical to this. There are all these categories of pro-slavery thought. There is the historical category. Rome had slavery. Greece had slavery. We want to be just like Rome and Greece. There is the religious thought. Slavery is in the Bible. Jesus doesn't condemn slavery ever. St. Paul sends the fugitive slave 
back to his master Philemon, St. Paul's letter to Philemon. Throughout the New Testament, you will now find no condemnation of slavery. The church is owned slaves. So God wants people to be slaves. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So religion, and they're the economists who say, look how much wealth slavery produces. Why would we ever want to get rid of this wealth? Then there are the political arguments in order for America to have a democracy, in order for the American democracy to work. All of the voters have to be equal. But you can't make black people equal. You can't make slaves equal. That would undermine the democracy. All right. There's the philosophy. Mm -hmm. you know, Plato writes about the Republic. In Plato's Republic, there will be slaves. Sir Thomas More, who will later, of course, become St. Thomas More, writes the book Utopia. Utopia is the perfect society. In More's Utopia, there will be slaves. Slavery is legitimate everywhere. John Locke, who implicitly condemns slavery in the second treatise in government, he says all people are entitled to life, liberty, and property. John Locke also invests in the Royal Africa Corporation. And John Locke writes a constitution for South Carolina, which includes slavery in the same clause where he also creates religious freedom for all people, regardless of their faith. So that South Carolina becomes after Rhode Island the first place in the Western world that self-consciously says you have religious freedom. This is a huge step forward in Western civilization. And then he says, and people of whatever religion are entitled to own their slaves. Duh. Complexity of it. But what weaves through all of this, and here's the point that needs to be understood. What weaves through all of this is race. Because what the Virginians do is to racialize slavery. Now, it had already been racialized by the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Dutch and the French. Everybody's racializing it because increasingly the only slaves are African. For a short while, they were Native American, but pretty much they are African. Mm -hmm. And again, there will be some treatment of Native Americans, especially in California both Spanish California and then immediately post-Spanish California, there'll be some treatment of Indians as slaves. But by and large, slavery becomes an African, non-African system. And all of the pro-slavery arguments revolve around race. Jefferson says that slavery doesn't make people stupid or incompetent. He says, look at all of the talented slaves in Rome that were philosophers and mathematicians and accomplished people. And then he says, but they were a race of white slaves. So race becomes the theme and that's the theme in American law. What we do is to create the cleavage of rights 
on one side you have white people and the other side you have everybody else. And much of American history since then, up until at least the 1970s, was the process of figuring out which side are you on in this divide. Really weird results in the, in the, in the 20th century. So you have the opinion of Thomas Ruffin in the North Carolina Supreme Court case, State versus Man. And then you have um, the opinion of Justice Taney in Dred Scott versus Stanford. And then you have Thomas Cobbs, um, What is Slavery and Its Foundation in the Natural Law, um, 1858 essay. Why these? Why these three documents um, to represent sort of the argued the legal defense of slavery? What makes them particularly salient? If we take a snapshot of the American economy in 1860 and we divide it according to kinds of property, livestock, real estate buildings, railroads, meaning everything from the tracks to the trains to the waiting rooms to the stations, right? Banks, all the bank buildings, all the, the capital value of the banks, right? Slaves as an economic category are the second most valuable kind of private property in the United States, exceeded only by real estate. That is, the value of all the slaves in 1860 is greater than all the banks in 1860. It's greater than the value of all of the railroad companies in 1860. Now, the cash value of all of the slaves in 1860 is about $2 billion in 1860 dollars. Okay. This gives you an idea of how incredibly valuable slavery is. Now, all that value and all that wealth would by itself lead to lots of legal cases. Fights over sale of a slave. You sold me a slave and the slave is defective. There's these wonderful lawsuits where the, where the buyer says the slave is addicted to running away. <laughs> and, and, you know, you sold me your, the slave and you didn't tell me he's addicted to running away. And and the seller's response is, well, he never ran away when I owned him. What are you doing wrong? So you get you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of private lawsuits involving slavery. You get thousands of contested wills. My uncle died and he left me 25% of his property. How do we measure the value of the slaves in relation to everything else? 
my father died and he said that I have to free the slaves. I don't want to be the slave. I don't want to free the slaves. I want to keep them for myself. Can, you know, can the court intervene? So we get constant litigation over property and the property is human beings. In addition to that, we of course have many criminal cases. Slaves can be the victims of crime. You murdered my slave. I want you prosecuted for murdering my slave. You beat up my slave because you're a drunk and a bully. I want compensation for the lost value of my slave because you beat my slave up. Or, on the other hand, the sheriff has just arrested my slave for robbery or murder or some other crime. And I want to defend my slave because I don't want to lose my slave. I'm defending my property. The slave has been charged with murder. And the question is, did the slave legitimately kill the person or was it murder? There are some odd results. There are slaves who are charged with murdering white men and who are acquitted. Because the courts rule that the slave has a right to defend his life from a murderous attack. And there are a few examples of white men who are convicted of murder for killing other people's slaves. And there are at least two famous cases that go to state Supreme Courts where masters are convicted for killing their own slaves. Now, this always surprises people. And, and part of the reason it surprises people is because we have a perception that the Southern law does not recognize the slaves as human beings. But of course, the Southern law does. How can they not? And so the question becomes not, are slaves people, and therefore entitled to some kind of protections of the law? Are they entitled to a fair trial if they are accused of the crime? But how do we adjust their status of slave? So we get lots and lots and lots of cases involving slavery. I have to write a skinny little book. I have to write a book that encapsulates and by the way, in some ways, it encapsulates 30 years of my career. Hmm. From when I first took this incredible seminar with Stanley Katz on the law of slavery. Hmm. How do I take all this and put it into three documents? So I chose very, very carefully. All right. Well... Thank you so much for being on the show today. Good. Take care.